Orange Bond is it's not just an undergrad thing. It really it's a grad school thing as well. And and some of my closest friends, some of my my best friendships that I've had in my life came out of my time at Syracuse. That's Dr. Brian Moritz, a communications professor at SUNY Oswego, who holds a master's and a doctoral degree from Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. I'm Chris Velarde, Director of Digital Engagement and Communications in the Office of Alumni Engagement, who holds a bachelor's degree from Newhouse. And this is the CUSE Conversation podcast. We're glad you found us. In addition to his work in higher education, Brian has about a decade of experience as a newspaper sports writer. He is also the sports media guy behind the website sportsmediaguy.com where he blogs about the business and hosts a podcast which is primarily about writing all kinds of writing in this Q's conversation we'll turn the tables on brian and ask him the questions we'll talk about his passion for teaching for writing for journalism for syracuse university and much more dr brian moritz thanks so much for joining me i appreciate this chris thanks for having me i really appreciate it all right well let's start because this is a Q's conversations podcast about your experience at Syracuse University, undergrad at St. Bonaventure. Then you decided to go a little further north in New York State uh, and attend Syracuse for your master's work and your in your doctoral work. What drew you to come to the Newhouse School in Syracuse? So it, it, it's kind of a long and a funny story how I got to Syracuse. Um, so I was I graduated from St. Bonaventure, like you said, in 1999, and then I worked professionally as a sports writer for 10 years. I covered St. Bonaventure basketball in Olean for five years, and then I moved to the Press and Sun Bulletin in Binghamton, and I covered. Binghamton U basketball, all their athletics. I covered what were then the Binghamton Mets, the double A team baseball team down there. Um, and then just about in 2008, 2009, I kind of had the itch to go back to graduate school. Um, this was a, a period of one of the first big periods of turmoil and and within the newspaper industry. And so kind of looking big picture, my wife and I had just gotten married. We were thinking about starting a family. And, you know, the, the sports writer life doesn't exactly lend itself to easy, easy family life because you're working nights, you're traveling a lot. You have you know nights off interrupted by breaking news and all that. Absolutely. So I started to. I started to look to uh, to think about graduate school. And it's funny because I didn't really have a, a firm plan other than the fact that I should probably go to grad school. And so I took the GREs, not knowing what I wanted to do, thinking maybe I'd go to Binghamton U for something. Maybe I'd go to Cortland, get my sports management master's. You know, I, I had no plan other than see what happens. And it was funny. I took the GREs and a few weeks later, I got an email from the University of Pennsylvania, like a recruitment email about their five-year PhD program. And I started thinking, huh, that sounds interesting. And then I realized as I was thinking about it, well, I'm living in, we're living in Binghamton at the time. I'm living in an hour from Newhouse one of the best schools in the country. I might as well look and in, look into that as well. Ended up applying to three graduate programs, got into the Newhouse Master's Program for Media Studies, which is kind of like the their two-year PhD prep program that, that you guys have. And so I started there in 2009, fell in love with the program. Uh, my daughter was born um, in the uh, middle of my second year in the two-year master's program. And so applying for PhD programs, you know, new, the Newhouse reputation is what it is. Um, my, my entire family is in upstate New York. My wife's entire family is in upstate New York. It was just the perfect match. So I, I stayed on for the PhD program and graduated from there in 2014. You have found that that orange network, I mean, Newhouse had the reputation there, but you found that that orange network kind of stays with you no matter where you go afterwards. 
Oh, it really, it absolutely does. Like you said, I've, I've, I've had several Syracuse graduates on my podcast. I've had lucky enough to have former students um, whom I taught Jesse Doherty, who's now at the Washington post, one of the best sports writers in the country, definitely one of the best young sports writers in the country. I taught him in um, the intro to news writing course. And when I was a doctoral student, and the friends I made in the PhD, in the doctorate program, in the master's and our cohort, it's just a, it's a really tight knit group. And it's one of the things I, 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 that impressed me about Syracuse when I started there, because it's such a big school and has a big school reputation, obviously. Right. But being in Newhouse is very much like, especially in graduate school, when you don't have gen ed requirements or anything else that you're doing. Um, so you're very focused on it. it. It feels like a like a small college within this larger institution. And certainly the grad program is like that because it's very small. And the PhD program takes about, when I was there, it was like three to five students a year. My cohort was four. And and so you're taking all the same courses together. You're, you're working late on papers together. You're in the our PhD carols in Newhouse 3 together. And, and, and it just, it it creates it's a really close knit group. And even now when we go to our annual conferences, whether it's the AEJMC conference or the NCA conference or all these kind of professional academic conferences that we have on the calendar each year. I mean, I'm hanging out with my Syracuse friends more than anything else. You know, we're <laughs> we're we're getting drinks, we're eating, we're getting dinner, we're going to each other's presentations. And and you're right that 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 orange bond is it's not just an undergrad thing it really it's a grad school thing as well and and some of my closest friends some of my my best friendships that i've had in my life came out of my time at syracuse yeah, it really is special, and it's the kind of story that we that we hear so often and certainly i myself have experienced as well and I want to jump into your academic work i mean you continue to teach now at SUNY Oswego, and as you're teaching kind of the next generation of analysts and understanding, because you were there, what the business has become, how do you approach it with that understanding, with that knowledge, but also trying to continue to inspire them to, to go out into the world and great work? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. It's something I think about a lot because you can't teach journalism or broadcast journalism in 2019 as we're recording this without on an honest um, assessment and honestly acknowledging the economic environment of journalism, which is reality stuff in flux at best and awful at worst. I mean, and I don't, I don't hide that from my students. I'm very honest with them about it. I share my experiences, good and bad. We talk about the economics and things that are happening within the industry. Um, but at the same time, you know, one thing that I've that, that that is interesting about this time, and it's something that um, the digital and social media kind of revolution has brought about, is that um, we're, we're, we're learning how to separate the acts of journalism from the nouns of journalism. So, like, you can be a journalist, but not necessarily working at a newspaper or working at a TV station. You know, journalism becomes much more, it's a kind of a catchphrase that journalism becomes a verb, not a noun. But I think there's something to that. And I think that, you know, teaching students that and, you know, how do I, how do I kind of stay in it? A lot of it is, you know, my students, they're, they're inspiring to me. You know, they are, they, they know what's going on in journalism. They are not 
ideal they're idealists but they're also re- realistic they know what what the industry is like but they still come to class they still major in journalism they still want to break news and tell stories and be engaged with their communities and i think that you know that's that's what you want to see you know the technical tools we can we we can you can get too caught in the weeds as of what social platform you should use what data visualization tool you can use and this that and the other thing and i think you know one of the things that i try to do with my students is you know foster and build on that sense of purpose, that passion, that that curiosity, and um, teach them about experimenting, teach them trying new things, teaching new ways to to tell stories, new tools to use, giving them a space to, to stri- try stuff in class that might fail, that might not go well, yeah. but what do you learn from that? I think that's so much more important than, you know, specific tools or specific ideologies or anything like that. Yeah, there is there is so much power in uh, just being able to navigate the world with the proper mindset as a young journalist. And I had the the honor and pleasure of teaching a critical perspectives on the news course at Newhouse last semester. And oh, neat. We- it was a it was a great. I mean, given the time that we live in, there was no shortage of topics, <laughs> no doubt. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about that is the ability to to really break down not just the, the the technical aspect of it, but to really dive a little deeper into the why and into the how and into the perspective of living in this world. And I think, you know, no matter what, you know, your young students or the students at Newhouse now go out and do in the world, I think they're better positioned because of the training of journalism. I mean, Chris, you bring up a really, really great point. And it's not just, you know, the the mechanics of doing journalism, whether that's a technical tool or learning the inverted pyramid or why a sentence works or why a lead works. Those are all important. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But, you know, I, I think that 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 larger scope, that those larger conversations are so important. And I found It sounds like you did too, but my students like these conversations. They're interested in this. They're voracious consumers of news and media. And so I think they're really interested in this. Yesterday, as we record this, uh, so that would be Monday, October 7th, um, we had a discussion in class. Somebody mentioned there there had been a shooting in Kansas City where four Mm -hmm. people were killed. And like it came up almost as an afterthought. And that spurred just like a five or 10 minute conversation on why is that? Why is this shooting that where four people died where we don't even mention it or as opposed to these shootings that do get that do kind of move the needle and, and lead to the larger discussion. So what are the differences between that and an El Paso or that and a Parkland? And yeah. is that right? And, and, and kind of getting them to think on that. And again, this is, this is a conversation in an online journalism class. It had nothing to do with the data visualization lesson that they were <laughs> learning that day, but those conversations I think matter and they're, they're important because like you said, it's that mindset that I think is so more important. And I do think that that's, what will serve students well. You know, Seth Godin always talks about, you know, teaching students to solve interesting problems. And I think that that's really important. Any student can learn, I don't say any student can learn, but you can learn the technical stuff with a little practice, like how to make a visualization, how to record a podcast, how to like fix a level in, in an audio program. Right. And, and those are important skills, but those are, those are things that you can kind of learn, learn on your own. And I think there's more, there's as much value in those bigger picture. What does it all mean conversations than just getting too nitty gritty in the tools? Because what you don't want 
And I've had this happen in, in classes where you teach a particular tool and then the app goes out of business. I had that happen to me in the middle of a class. They were the, the app they were using for their final projects announced that it was folding. Luckily, it folded a week after the final was done so they could still finish it. But yeah, but the app disappeared. And so, you know, you spend too much time on that and now all of a sudden you've wasted the time. But if you approach it from this app is part of a bigger picture on it, how do you use social media in general, not just Twitter or not just Facebook, but what are what do we mean when we talk about social media within journalism at a larger level and then apply that to the platforms as they come up or as they're used? That's much more valuable, I think. No doubt. And those are the conversations that if we want journalism to continue to do the work that it is intended to do, we want these kids to to have these conversations. We want them to challenge their their producers and their editors and their managers and, and have these often difficult conversations. But if they can come to the table with some perspective and having had these talks in college already, better mm-hmm. place to do it. Well, and, and having their, you know, providing a space to have to where they feel that their voice is being heard and their perspective is being heard. Right. It is great, too. And I think about this a lot because at Oswego, we have a lot of first generation students and we have a lot of people from we have a lot of people who don't look like me and who come from very different backgrounds as me. And, you know, for so long, uh, journalism has really been centered as a white guy's profession, a middle class, to upper class, yep. white person's white man's profession. And, you know, sometimes the best thing that we can do is give our students of color, our female students, our LGBTQ students, the, the, uh, just a space where they feel their voice is heard. It doesn't necessarily mean that we we cater to them. It doesn't necessarily mean that that we don't listen to anybody else, but making sure that giving them a chance to be heard and to give their perspective, I think I would hope emboldens them a little bit to take ownership and to be able to speak up, like you said, when a producer or an editor says something and they can have that conversation and feel like they've had their, their voice is important and their voice can be heard. Won't keep having the conversation if they don't feel like they're being listened to. And that's exactly uh, that's crucial. Yeah, very important. Let's go a little deeper into this the idea of sports because it's on your website, Sports Media Guy. Um this is obviously a place that you you worked, you have passion, and so much change in terms of how sports journalists handle their job. Um, obviously, you know, with ESPN, we've seen certain journalists get um, criticized for their approach because it's gone outside of what was considered to be the realm of sports. That'll stick to sports, uh, you know, argument that is often made. How, how have you seen that evolution? And, um, you know, where, where do you think we are? And is it a good place for, for sports journalism? Um, or is it a dangerous place? I think, well, I, I, I'm as an anti stick to sports person, I think it's a very good place. So let's get that out of the way yep. in, in a hurry. You know, I, I think where we are, I think that one of the good things about one of the emboldening things about what has happened in digital media over the past 20 years or so, the past generation, is that it has opened up the the gates to voices again what we're saying voices from communities from people who wouldn't have a voice otherwise you know who wouldn't have been the 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 columnist at the local paper who wouldn't have been you know writing it's necessarily writing at sports illustrated or writing with a national voice there's just so much more so many more platforms out there for people to write on and i think that it has opened our eyes collectively in sports media in a good way you know we think we, we i think there's much more or 
much more nuanced to how we look at these issues. And I think we're, we're kind of taking more seriously issues of how we cover race in athletics, how we cover mm-hmm. sexuality in athletics. Uh, and, and that intersection, uh, you know, that, that kind of intersection of race, sex, money, politics, and sports, it all, it all comes to a head. And, you know, talking on the stick to sports idea, you know, that is, you know, get back to the idea. That's an incredibly privileged point of view. It is. It's very privileged for me to be able to sit and say, I don't want to think about politics. I don't want to think about that. I just want to watch a basketball game for two hours. I just want to watch a football game for three hours. And again, the the, right. The reason is that that's not our world. We can't separate these things. They don't operate in bubbles. And we see that again, as we record this with the NBA and China and what's happening right now because of a a tweet from a general manager of one and how the implications and and the repercussions on that have been enormous. I mean, and if you're you're not familiar with the story, the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted uh, over the weekend um, about supporting Hong Kong. And the NBA is huge in China, and the Chinese government is not real favorable to that type of opinion. And the Houston Rockets are the team in China because Absolutely. primarily Yao because Ming. of Yao Ming, right? And 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 so just just looking at that, and I think one of the complicating things in this is this China story, like you mentioned, it's incredibly complex and it's complicated. And you know, I think you know there, there's nuance to it. There's business relationships. There's the decision the NBA to embrace China and our economy to embrace China in the first place. So I don't think you know it's. It's weird. I think one of the things that comes up in with this issue is sports has always we've often thought and conceptualized about sports as being kind of very black and white. Right. Like like you win, you lose, you know, you you first across the finish line, second across the finish line. The play worked, the play didn't, you know, whatever. And, you know, I think one of the things that has come when we look at sports and politics and, and all these issues is that they're complicated. They cannot really be uh, brought down to a yes, no answer or to a, to a, to a win or lose answer. And I think they, they, they are bigger issues and I think it's complicated. And I yeah. think that, I think that, that the conversation that has arisen, you know, around, paying college athletes and the light and, and the likeness issue and the issues that have come around, obviously with Colin Kaepernick and, uh, and his, um, and his activism have been, I, th- they've been good. I think they, I, I think they are, there's no negative that comes, that, that comes from these discussions. I think opening the opening people to this larger discussion to seeing how people of color view uh, race relations in the country and viewed through the lens of this football player. I think that I, I think these are important discussions. And I think one of the things they can do that sports can do when it's doing well is that it can bring these discussions to young people, young men, especially who maybe are not super political or kind of tend to. I don't want to generalize, but who maybe can tend toward not paying attention to the front page of the paper, not paying attention to bigger political issues. And and you also, I mean, you have to look at this debate when, and think that, you know, there's no small amount of irony. And I'm by far the first person to mention, to point out that at the same time, this whole stick to sports debate is going on. Muhammad Ali passes away and he's lionized as the greatest of all time, right? Um, everything that people say about Colin Kaepernick now, they would have said about, Mah- they were saying about Muhammad Ali and worse 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, it, you know, the, the, the arc of history is long, as they say, but, 
you know, I think these conversations are good. I think it's good that sports media in a, as a whole moves beyond the, the bubble of what's happening on the field and the X's and O's and acknowledges the, the bigger landscape. I think it just makes for a more interesting experience. It makes for better stories. It makes yeah. for it makes for a better it, it just makes the experience of following sports better and richer, in my opinion. Everything I think is important to have perspective. And um, if, if you're just looking at things in their own little columns, it it, it does kind of get lost. And, and the greater perspective, I think, is really important. And I think that's where that's where those types of stories uh, certainly come into play. Um, let's let's change a bit. Uh, actually, maybe maybe a lot, maybe very abruptly. We're not going to stick to sports. Um, and and <laughs> one of the things that um, you know, I, I mentioned to you in, in an introductory email that I found your podcast through an interview you had done with a songwriter, uh, a contemporary musical theater songwriter. So I found it odd that it was on a website called sportingguy.com. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing here is your interview was about the process of writing. Mm-hmm. And whether it's writing music, whether it's writing words, whatever it is, I, I think you've got a, a really interesting um, approach to talking to people about that. What What is your draw to that? Why are you so interested in that? Oh, that, well, I thank you for saying that. And that interview with uh, it was with Drew Gasparini that we had talked about. And um, yep. if you're not familiar with his music, please look him up wherever you stream music. It's 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 funny. It's full of heart. He's just such a great, great writer. So what drew me to it? Um, I love writing and I love talking about writing. Um, I'm a former sports journalist and I write, obviously, for my job. My wife is an editor. So we talk about writing literally over the dinner table. Like we will have conversations (laughs) about writing and about AP style and about grammar and stuff like that. We're total nerds, but it's what we love to talk about. And I had been toying with the idea several years ago of starting a podcast and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I could do like a sports media one to kind of go along with the website. And it didn't really interest me. And so I just, I, I know a lot of writers, obviously, in a lot of different areas. And so I, I just kind of toyed with the idea, well, let's talk about, let's talk to writers. And I wanted to, to try to focus the conversations. Like, so the, the, the general vibe that I go for is the, it's in the introduction. It's the, it's the, not a class about writing or a formal conference about writing. It's two, three writers sitting around the bar after deadline, which we used to do in newspapers all the time. You finish right. your story, you go out, you get a late dinner, you have a couple of drinks and you talk about the job, you talk about writing. And those are some of my best memories of the profession. So I really want to kind of recapture that. And I'm really more interested in as much the craft of writing and how different writers actually write Um, and more so than let's say promoting their new book, which is fine when people want to do that. I love, you know, people talking about their books, but I'm very interested in, in the how of writing. I think that's really instructive and really interesting. And I think writers of any kind, whether you write for your job, whether you write for fun, whether you're an author, a, a journalist, whatever, I think you can learn different things. And I just find the different perspectives that people bring to it so interesting. And I think it's so well, it, it can be really instructive. Is there a common theme that you have found in talking to this different, gr- many different uh, groups of types of writers that ties them all together that makes a good writer? Oh, that is a really, really good question. Um, what I think one of the one of the comments. So 
What's interesting is that there's no kind of common process. You know, some people are, um, you know, binge writers. Some people write a little bit at a time. Some people research a lot. Some people write kind of more off the cuff. Some people write fast. Some people write slow at night, at day, blah, 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 blah. And that's important to recognize as a teacher. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's hugely important. You know, I think one of the threads is finding finding what works for you is is hugely important and finding the process that works for you. But kind of implicit in that is that all of these writers do have some sort of process. They do have they they have thought through how they do their writing, sometimes in very intricate ways, sometimes in very detailed ways, sometimes less. But, you know, they they all have a very kind of set way that they do their work that they write, that they conceptualize either the writing, the research, whatever they have to do, they have thought this through. And it makes sense because it's their job, it's their livelihood, it's what they do. And so I think that that's a common thread. And one other thing I think that I have found, I struggle with this in my own writing life, but I, I, I try to pull from it from my, from my guests is the need for uh, writers to be disciplined. And how the and how so many of them, um, one common thread I think it's not in all 100 and whatever episodes I have, but many of them talk about how they need to like very specifically discipline themselves. You know, for you know, set up very structured times when they're going to write, structured sessions when they're going to write, so yeah. that and, and Drew Drini talked about that. Yes. Um, in that podcast, very specifically about kind of getting to that place where he knew he had to be to to get something productive. Right. And one of the things that he said that 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 was very useful was that he when he knows he has a lot of writing to do on a day, he's not going to do that on a day when he has to teach a class later that night or has a private lesson or a show that night. And the idea for him, and this is kind of very personal to him, is that he doesn't want anything to interrupt his momentum when he gets going. He doesn't want to have to stop because he's got a class or he's got this other obligation to do. And I think that 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 discipline can manifest itself itself in different ways for different writers. Certainly an academic, uh, a professor is going to have a very different schedule and you've got to figure out like making it around class time and around grading and all the other things that you do. And it's very different from a journalist who is a journalist. Like there's no, like the discipline is the deadline you have to hit. Um, There's no, like you don't really have to force yourself to do it. (laughs) Game ends. You've got 45 minutes to get the game story in, whether you're feeling it or not, which was such a freeing thing, by the way, when I was, a reporter um yeah i'm a de- i'm a deadline i'm a probably i i don't know if i'm wired for deadlines because i was a journalist or if i'm naturally wired for deadlines and that's why i took to journalism i haven't figured that one out yet but <laughs> but it's something that but that that deadline i have found for me is such a freeing thing because it's the I got to get this done. If it's any good or if it's any not, I've got to get it done. And I, I, and I like that too. I felt the same way. I, I worked as a as a TV reporter night side, and that idea of you know the meeting just got over at nine forty five, and I've got a live shot at eleven, and my editor needs to edit the video. I have to write this, and it has to be decent, and I have to get it on the air, and it has to have all the 
things that a story has to have. Um, but I, I like that pressure. Uh, and, and now when I kind of have this, well, this isn't due for another three weeks, I makes it very difficult for me That's to write. That's brutal. That's the worst place I find myself in, right? Over the, so, so over the summer, I had two deadline experiences where we had to do a co-author of my, and I had to do uh, uh, edits on a, a on an article we had submitted for to a journal for publication. And we, we talked about what we were going to do. And like it, we got the edits toward the end of the semester. So we put it off while we finished semester and all. And then we had a phone call. We were talking about what we had to do. And we realized that the edits, we had to have them in the next day. So all of a sudden, what was going to be like a week long process of going back to the literature, making sure we have everything and all of a sudden throw that out the window and just pound it out and get it done. And yep. and, and that, that it's weird because that was that old deadline pressure from the newspaper business. But it is so freeing because if the deadline focuses you and the deadline with a. The, what, what I found, and I've talked about this, I think, on the podcast, is the deadline with a penalty. I'm trying to, I, I can't yeah. think of the right word, but like I can set a deadline all I want. But if there's no penalty involved, there's no uh, something happens where where if I don't hit the deadline, then the deadline's meaningless. But when you have that, we also wrote a 7,000 word chapter in a week because of deadline. Um, <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. But again, so much. But 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 again, the, and what I loved about deadline writing at a newspaper, and I'm sure you found this for the TV is, of course, you do a good job. You get all the facts right. You you do a good job. But you also know you got another swing coming tomorrow. Right. Or you've got oh, another story coming the next day or the next day. And so that 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 combination just takes the pressure off of like, OK, let's get this done. And then I come back tomorrow and I get another shot yeah. at it, which is a great thing to remember in writing in all writing. I think I think it can be very um natural to think of things as kind of like very precious and this has to be my best and that perfectionism can squeak in. But you're always going to have another chance. You're always yeah. going to have another time to write. And so you know, I'm far afield from the stuff I've, I've learned on my podcast, but that's just something I've thought about <laughs> a lot with writing is, is that, that idea of doing, uh, of doing the work, what it comes yeah. down to. And whether it's a book, whether it's a columnist, whether it's a songwriter or something along those lines, the, the, the work kind of takes precedence and, and taking that work very seriously and thinking through the your job and what you're trying to write and and if you take it seriously enough and, and find the work pattern work ethic that works for you i think that's that's kind of the big lesson from it yeah no doubt and and you know one of the things i liked about starting in tv when i did is everything wasn't on the internet the next day so it was literally on the <laughs> and gone um you know as right. the newspaper kind of stuck around so people could still go back and and double check your work but tv i liked the idea that it was on the air and then it was gone and that obviously has changed but <laughs> right it is totally uh, that was totally ephemeral in terms of media and that was that was a, a huge huge godsend i'm very glad that a lot of my early pieces and columns were in the not huge internet era and i think yeah. that's a disservice for young writers in a way like it's great obviously you can get your work shared you can get out there you can get feedback on it but i think i do wonder with young writers if there's a fear of this idea that everything lives forever on the internet and right. you don't want that as a writer like you want to i wrote some terrible columns i mean just awful <laughs> things that i would disavow that i'm really glad only the people in only in new york read um and you know, I, I, I do sometimes wonder, like, if I were if I had written that now, wh what what could have happened or what would have happened on this? And what would have happened to me as a writer? Would I have become gun shy? Would I have become, you know, take fewer chances with my writing? Would I have 
but I've, you know, kind of stuck to my guns obstinately. You know, it, it, I do wonder how keeping everything online and having it forever, how much that we, 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 we haven't looked at it, I think, collectively yet. But I think that's interesting to think about how much it affects young writers and what they're willing to try and what they're willing to how they're willing to develop. Absolutely. Creativity is part of that process. You have to allow yourself to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and be better the next time. And if you are afraid those mistakes are going to be out there online forever, you may be a little, like you said, gun shy. You may be afraid to do it. I I, I want to ask you, I I know your fee in terms of deadlines is something that you bring to your students. You're, you're pretty, you're pretty tough on telling them, look, this is when it's due, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, so that's the business. Well, it's funny because I've written about this. Um, so yes, I do have a very tough, uh, I, I guess, strict-ish deadline policy. So for the longest time, it was if you don't turn in, if you miss a deadline in a journalism, I teach all journalism and broadcast classes um, and all in our all in our department at Oswego. And so I'm like, if you miss a deadline, you fail. It used to be you get a zero, but then it was just you fail. Um, the assignment. And I tell them very, very seriously, like you have to hit deadlines. You have to know to hit deadlines on this. You know, I would tell them the story that if I missed the deadline, I would be fired and all this stuff and, and stress upon them. But what I also have, have realized is that um, strict deadlines matter, but communication and doing the work matters more. So I, I, I do tell my students two things. One, I tell them to even turn in an assignment late um, because you will get points on it. And I, I added to a semester, it's having some points is better than zero towards your final grade. But more importantly, I want you to do the assignment and do the work and get that practice in. That's more important to me long-term for you, for a student's growth than worrying about a specific grade on assignment. The other thing I learned, I, I, I've since come around with, is that whole I would get fired for missing a deadline is a bunch of malarkey. Um, because I would, I, I, I mean, I would not want to miss deadline, but if a game ran late, I would, they would hold deadline. Or if something came up with a family member in my life that I had to miss a deadline on a feature story because something came up or something happened. And I talked to my editor every time, even the, the, the most old school hard nosed editor I had in Binghamton would always be very open and we would work together on it. And that's what I want to teach them too, that if if you're having trouble with an assignment, if you can't make it um, by deadline, let me know. Let's have a conversation about it. It doesn't mean you get a pass. It doesn't mean you know, you're know you off scot-free. But again, teaching them that bigger skill that we were talking about earlier, that bigger skill of communicating with your editor, with your boss, with your professor, with the people in your life who are, who are, who are expecting things from you is a much more important skill to have than, you know, what, than the, the, individual thing that you're working on that. So I do have strict deadlines, strict ish deadlines, but again, it's all in purpose, all in service, I think of teaching the teaching students and getting them to understand and think about the larger world that they're going to be working in and those larger lessons. And, and those are the things that are going to stick with them as they right. get to, to their first job is, you know, as they're in the world and, and look, the other reality I, I say are their first job. And, and we, we live in an age where a lot of them are already doing the um, in addition to being students, it's right. It's a, it's an incredible time, but it's pretty impressive to see. Certainly, you know, we see it here 
Syracuse with uh, some of our student broadcasters who are doing ACC network work and 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 just doing all kinds of it's just the I'm never jealous being around students except for the opportunities that uh, that are there right now. It, uh, it, because of technology. It, yeah, yeah, it, it is amazing. You know, whether it's at Syracuse, whether we have you know at, at our at Oswego where we have you know our daily the, the student weekly newspaper, the daily shows that they have on WTOP our 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 TV station, our radio station as well, and all the freelance opportunities. Opportunities that they have now yep. that weren't available, weren't as widely available to us in the 90s. And yeah, it is, you know, I don't know how I am I, literally in awe of my students a lot of times with yeah. the amount of stuff that they do. Um, anybody who says that college students and they're not really millennials, but if you want to throw it, call them millennials are lazy <laughs> and entitled. Spend a week on a college campus watching these kids. And if you yeah. still think that, then that's your problem, not theirs, because the work they do and, and, and the care and passion that they bring to everything that they do is it's staggering. It's humbling and it's kind of inspiring to, to be a part of. It is. And and this this is, a, I think, maybe a good pl- good place to this conversation, if you are not, you know, in this world of journalism, you're watching it as a consumer of journalism. I think if the takeaway in what you see, Brian, and, and what I have seen uh, from students at Newhouse and is that it's in good hands. The future is in good hands because of that type of passion and commitment um, and, and just interest and right. really doing good work. Right. I tell them in this this online journalism class that I teach, I'm like, you guys are making the future of journalism. What journalism looks like in 30, 20, 30 years is going to be because of what you guys do, not because of what I did back in the back in the 90s and early 2000s. Not what people are doing now. You guys get to decide what journalism is going to look like. And I hope that's inspiring to them. Um, I hope that 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 fosters, like you said, that passion and that worldview that they bring because it's a tough racket and it's always been a tough racket and it's tougher every day out there now as we try to figure out, you know, navigate the the, the digital economics of journalism. But I do think that the students who will love it and who stick with it and who care about it are every bit as talented, maybe more so, and every bit as dedicated as we were 20 years ago as the generation before us. And I think you're right. I think the, the future of journalism is definitely in strong hands with, with the students. And we, I just hope that economically the models can come to support their work. Brian, thanks so much for letting me turn the podcasting tables on you and ask you the questions. Chris, this has been a little like inception-y, but it's kind of awesome. Thanks for having me. Talking about writing and teaching in the business of journalism, I appreciate Brian Moritz joining us on the Cuse Conversation podcast. You can find links to his website, sportsmediaguy.com, which features his blog and his podcast about the process of writing called The Other 51. If you're a fan of Hamilton the Musical, you may understand that reference in the name of his podcast. As for this podcast, we're glad you found it, and we hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. My name is Chris Villardi. Thanks for listening. Go Orange!